0: Good morning. I'm going to be reading all of Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Jeff Mallett is coming up to speak today. If we could just take a second and do one. Okay. Lord Jesus, I just pray for Jeff right now that you will just speak through him and give him the words and the courage. And Lord, I just pray for all of us listening that you will give us the ears to hear your message. In your name we pray. Amen.
1: Pastor Albert is in Vegas, and so I decided to preach a sermon on sin. Sorry. Born This Way is the second studio album by American recording artist Lady Gaga. It was released on May 23, 2011 by Interscope Records, and it debuted in the top five spots in every market, including the Billboard 200. In the United States, Born This Way sold 1.1 million copies in its first week, the largest first-week album sales in five years. An estimated 440,000 copies were sold on Amazon in two days of its first week at a price of 99 cents. Four of the album's singles, Born This Way, Judas, The Edge of Glory, and You and I, went on to chart in the top ten of the Billboard Hot 100, and Born This Way became the fastest-selling single in iTunes history, at least according to Wikipedia. Secondly, down right below Lady Gaga, you see Leo Babauda. He is a local, lives in San Francisco, has a wife and six kids, and he's the author of zenhabits.net, which is what Time Magazine, or time.com, rated as one of the top 50 websites of 2011. It has over, I think, 250,000 people checking in with Leo every week. On his website, he wrote this blog. It says, what's wrong with the world? Not a darn thing. says, It struck me recently that a lot of people think they know what's wrong with this world. And it also struck me that they are all wrong. Seriously. Almost every political and religious group, every opinionated person, every publication with an opinion has said at one time or another what they think is wrong with this world. Conservatives think we become a welfare state while many liberals think we're allowed too much corporate welfare. Others things that are wrong with the world, depending on the group: the media, young people, environmentalists, McDonald's, criminals, gays, black people, white people, foreigners overrunning our country, bigots, radicals, the establishment, poor people, corporations, lazy people, evil people, Fox News, the Internet. The list could go on and on. So what's really wrong with the world, in my opinion, says Leo? Not a thing. It seems to be a prevailing worldview that the world is messed up, that there are just a few things wrong with it, and if we could only get those things to change, the world would be great. If we could just educate people and get them to realize what's wrong with this world, things could change. So what's wrong with that? Well, nothing's wrong with that, actually. That's how most people are, and I don't think I can change that, nor would I want to. I thought it would be an interesting discussion, though, because I think this discrepancy between what people think the world should be and what the world really is can cause unhappiness. When reality doesn't meet ideals, and it rarely does, we become unhappy. So what's the alternative, according to Leo? He says, there is an alternative, and I'm not saying it's better. It's the worldview I try to have. Instead of having an ideal, stop looking for perfection. Accept the world as it is and love it for what it is. Accept people as they are and love them. Realize that you have an ideal in your head and that it's probably incompatible with the world. It might be an ideal about a person or about how things should be. The world and people are not perfect. Stop looking for perfection and realize that it is already here. The world is a wonderful place once you've accepted it for what it is and sought to love it. People are wonderful creatures, full of life and creativity and messiness and uniqueness. Accept this, understand it, love it, and enjoy this gift we've been given for it's incredible and perfect just the way it is. One more example. Paul Ernest wrote The Philosophy of Mathematics Education, published in 1991. In it, he proposes a relativist view of mathematics. In his introduction, he writes this. The philosophy of mathematics is in the midst of a Kuhnian revolution. For over 2,000 years, mathematics has been dominated by an absolutist paradigm, which views it as a body of infallible and objective truth, far removed from the affairs and values of humanity. Currently, this is being challenged by a growing number of philosophers and mathematicians. They are affirming that mathematics is fallible, changing, and like any other body of knowledge, the product of human inventiveness. This philosophical shift has significance that goes far beyond mathematics. For mathematics is understood to be the most certain part of human knowledge. It's cornerstone. If its certainty is questioned, the outcome may be that human beings have no certain knowledge at all. This would leave the human race spinning on their planet in an obscure corner of the universe with nothing but a few local myths for consolation. This vision of human insignificance may be too much, or rather too little, for some to bear. Does the last bastion of certainty have to be relinquished? In the modern age, uncertainty has been sweeping through the humanities, ethics, the empirical sciences. Is it now to overwhelm all our knowledge? says, however, in relinquishing the certainty of mathematics, it may be that we are giving up the false security of the womb. It may be time to give up this protective myth. Perhaps human beings, like all creatures, are born into a world of wonders, an inexhaustible source of delight, which we will never fathom completely. But it could be that such imaginings are part of what it means to be human and not the certain truths that we took them to be. Perhaps facing up to uncertainty is the next stage of maturity for the human race and relinquishing myths of certainty may be the next act of decentration that human development requires. What are these three people saying? What do they have in common? Listen to their message. It's actually really, really comforting. Let's do an experiment. Close your eyes and take an inventory of the feelings that come over you as you say these words with me. I'm on the right track, baby. Practice together. I'm on the right track, baby. There is nothing wrong with the world. Two plus two is whatever I want it to be. That's very comforting. That's very empowering. Those are comforting statements. And I hate to be blunt, but I'm going to try and spend the next 35 minutes completely destroying that comforting feeling that I just gave you by saying those statements. And replacing it with something I think is far more hopeful. First off, I want to ask, what are these three people trying to avoid? What are they saying? Why all the defensive posturing? What is it that they are reacting so passionately against? Three words. Three very powerful, life-changing words. I was wrong. How many people in here know that those three words can save a relationship, whether it be with your boss, your spouse, your friend? In fact, those are so healthy. Let's practice saying those words real quick. Let's just turn to your neighbor and say, "Neighbor, I was wrong." See, doesn't that feel better? Yeah, that's healthy. Thank you, thank you. Even if you didn't believe it, thank you. So. No, that's so healthy. But in a society like ours, those words are extremely dangerous. Why? Why? To the Zen Buddhist of zenhabits.net, Leo Bavada, and to teachers of new mathematics that say it's all relatives, these words drop like an atom bomb on their worldview. I was wrong. Why? What's wrong with saying, I was wrong? Well, two things. If you say, I was wrong, that implies two things. Number one, it implies that there is a right. If you say, I was wrong, it means that two plus two really doesn't equal three, or whatever you want it to be. If you say, I was wrong, then it says that there is a right answer. There is a right way to relate to one another. And there's a right way to relate to God. If you say, I was wrong, it implies that there is a right. There's a way that's right. And this is why I think that this doctrine that we're talking about today is one of the most hopeful doctrines in the Bible. The second implication is that if you say, I was wrong, then there's work to be done. It implies the need for change. Not only the need, but the possibility for change. One of the things I love about Regen is that we strive to bring about positive change in the community. We don't just leave the world the way it is because it's perfect already. The interns who just finished out their year with Regen can tell you they spent a great deal of time volunteering with organizations throughout Oakland to bring about positive change in the community. There's something inside of us at Regen. We see homelessness and we say there's something not write about that and so we send interns and volunteer at the Vietnamese community center or we feed them across the street on Sunday mornings we see refugees who are kicked out of their home countries brought to the Bay Area given three months to learn English and get a job and there's something in us that says that's not quite the way it's supposed to be And so we offer up the chapel twice a week for refugees to come take citizenship classes or learn English a little quicker. We see human trafficking on International Boulevard and we say, that's not right. Something about that just doesn't sit well with me. And so we invite activists to come and tell us about the CASE Act and how your vote in November matters and how you can bring about positive change to reverse What's happening right outside our doors? What are these things that we're trying to fix? What are we trying to change? The Bible tells us that all of these things are effects of sin. Homelessness, people being displaced from their countries, people being trafficked, selling others, taking advantage of others. All of these effects of a doctrine called sin. Not a very popular topic. The word sin has gotten a bad rap in our society, but I want to submit to you that it is one of the most hopeful doctrines in the Bible. Why? Because if there is such a thing as sin, then there's work to do. There's work to be done. If there is sin, then something can be done to bring the world back to the way that it's supposed to be. Because if there is sin, then there's a way that it's supposed to be. So, the passage we're dealing with today is all about sin. Genesis 3 spells it out for us. You have the root, the results, and the remedy. The root of sin, the results of sin, and the remedy of sin. First off, the root of sin. What do you notice about that word? Capital I. I think this is the only way to spell the word sin. Why? Because I am in the center of the universe, I am in the middle, I am the biggest. Lowercase s, capital I, lowercase n. I in the middle. Why? Because this is exactly what sin means. What Genesis 3 is saying. It says, I am perfectly capable of deciding for myself what is right and what's wrong. This is the root of sin. Take a look with me at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's it. That was the root of sin. That temptation. Two sentences from the serpent. One question, and that statement. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's so tempting about that? The Hebrew in this passage is sort of I don't like the way it's been translated. Translations are usually very literal. So uh, let me first start off, before I tell you what it's saying, let me first tell you what it's not saying. What it's not saying when it says Adam and Eve could be like God, knowing good and evil, or that Adam and Eve had become like us, knowing good and evil, what it's not saying is not imply that God has a personal experiential knowledge of what it is to do evil. That's what it's not saying. He doesn't have some dark history that he's repented of in order to become the perfect God. No, he is perfect. He's God in his very nature, the standard of perfection by which all other things are measured. He is perfect, the author of life, originator of universe, benevolent, all-powerful God. So what is it saying? It's saying Adam and Eve would be able to determine for themselves what is good and what is evil saying, you could determine for yourself what's best for you. You think, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, that sounds like a basic American right. I get to determine what's best for me. Autonomy, independence, that's what we want. I mean, yeah, this this way of thinking is so ingrained to us as Americans that we cringe at the thought of someone else deciding what's best for us. Let's do a little experiment one more time. Okay, so close your eyes and take an inventory of what sort of feelings crop up when I say the following words. Parenting. Power of attorney. I know what's best for you. Okay, you can open your eyes. Did anyone feel a little like nauseous in their stomach when I said the last one a little bit? Yeah, it's because in America we say, no, not until I'm comatose can someone else decide what is best for me. It's like, no, until I am completely incapable of reasoning and getting ready in the morning. It's like, no, I get to decide what's best for me. You know, in fact, that's the American ideal is that from today and on through the rest of my life, that would be the best ideal world is that I get to wake up in the morning and decide what's best for Jeff. But to the writer of Genesis, there could be nothing worse. There could be no worse fate for humanity than for us to have to decide every morning what's best for us. That's backwards thinking. Why does he say that? Why? Well, because to the writer of Genesis, that's God's role. That's his rightful role. And in fact, Just to give us a little bit of context to the passage we're studying today in Genesis 3. I want to back up and take a brief look at Genesis 1 through 2. In these two first chapters, God establishes himself as the perfect judge of what is good and what is not good. Look with me, just like day one, it says God created light and darkness, day and night. And at the end he says, it is good. Day two, he creates air and separates water from dry land and he says, it is good. Day three, he creates vegetation and fruit-bearing trees and says, it is good. Day four, he fills the sky with the stars and the moon and the sun and says, it is good. Day five, he makes fish according to their kinds and birds according to their kinds and insects all according to their kinds. And he says, it is good. Day six, he makes animals according to their kinds, beasts of the earth, livestock according to their kinds. Finally, he makes Adam for the very first time in the bible even before the fall we hear the words it's not good it's not good for adam to be alone so what does he do he makes eve he makes adam fall into a deep sleep and he creates eve out of his rib and then he says it was very good and all the women in the crowd are being like, yeah, that's right. He didn't say very good till we came along. Don't get so prideful. It, it gets worse. We're getting to chapter three. So, <laughs> and Adam agreed. Like you look at Adam's statement when he woke up again, and he says, whoa, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, baby. Hallelujah. It is very good. And God placed them in the garden and he says, go be naked and unashamed and multiply and fill the earth, make babies, eat the fruit, be fruitful, enjoy yourself. We'll go for walks in the evening, in the shade. It'll be great. It's very good. The Bible has a very specific image of what good is, what good looks like, the ideal that we fell from. And by the way, just as a side note, when it says that Adam and his wife were naked and unashamed, what it's trying to get across is, it says, Adam and Eve, you could be fully known to each other and fully loved. Fully known, fully loved, fully provided for, living in paradise, walking with God in the cool of the evening breeze. That's not too bad. That sounds pretty good to me. If that's my ideal, I'd be like, yeah, there's a lot of things wrong with the world. I'm clothed. (laughs) (laughs) For one, I had to put on clothes this morning. (laughs) There's there's something wrong with that. Now, you guys are all going to go home and be like, Jeff is out of his mind. Don't worry. I'm not asking you guys to go into Oakland naked after this sermon. There's a reason we have clothes, and it's a good one. So, um, (laughs) but yeah, you could be fully known, fully loved. Living with your wife in the garden and walking with God, That sounds awesome. And he says it's not good for us to be alone. See, God has already established himself as a judge of what is good and what is not good. He didn't know evil. He just knew what was good for us. He also knew what was not good for us. And he set us up with the good. So yeah, serpent comes along, whispers to them, he's holding out on you. What do you mean? Look at that fruit over there. It looks just as delicious as any other fruit in the garden. He's holding out on you. And by the way, There was actually nothing wrong with the fruit itself. Some people say, oh yeah, it was poisonous or it was magical fruit. No, there was nothing wrong with the fruit itself that made God forbid it. It's not like it was bad for them or couldn't be eaten. I mean, Eve herself said, yeah, it looks delicious. Just as delicious as the other fruit in the garden. Yeah, I can see it's good for making me wise. And who wouldn't want to be like God? I want to be like God. I want to be able to determine for myself what is good and what is not good. But there's another point I want to make here too. There was nothing wrong with the fruit. The only thing that was wrong with it was that God asked Adam not to eat it. Well, if it's not poisonous and it's not magical, then why? Why shouldn't I eat it? Looks just as good as the rest of the fruit in the garden. But as, as soon as we start to ask why, then we set ourselves up in the place of God. God was asking Adam and his wife to trust him. He was saying, I've set you up with a nice place. Adam, buddy, you've got stars above your head, the earth beneath your feet, plenty of food to eat and a wife Made in your likeness, bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh. Whoa, baby. With whom you can be fully known and fully loved. We can go for walks together, an evening cool of the shade, and you'll live like a king. But oh, one thing. Hey, um, you're not going to want to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just trust me on this one. Take me at my word. God was asking them to have faith. He was asking them to do something out of no other reason than because God is glorious, good, and because He said so. But they had no faith. So, what happened? How did young Adam and Eve do as judges of what's best for them? Well, immediately after they ate the fruit, they went into hiding. They no longer felt comfortable being naked with one another. They made fig leaf tunic to cover themselves up. It was as if they were saying, I don't trust you anymore, Adam. I don't trust you anymore, Eve. I need to control what you know about me. They were alienated from each other. And they were alienated from God. And they were alienated from themselves. I mean, look at this. Adam, he couldn't even be honest with himself. God asks him, One simple question, did you eat of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? All he has to do is say, yeah, that's not what he says. That's not what he says, he's in denial. He's he's estranged even from himself. He can't fathom what he's done. He says, the woman, the woman that you gave me, she gave to me, this is her fault. And you, you gave her to me. You have to take part of the blame too. You thought this was a great idea. Now look what she did. The very thing that God said was very good and which Adam affirmed as very good. Adam is now calling evil. Eve is pointing the finger, saying, she did it, and you did it. You're to blame. You put her here. Just one chapter back, he was saying, Whoa mama. Not so anymore. So how did we do as our own God? We stunk it up. And because we stunk it up, everything was affected. Perhaps the most ironic twist of fate was this Adam and Eve were made to live as king and queen over all of creation. They were made to rule as kings and queens of all the earth, of all the livestock, beasts of the field, the fish, the the birds of the air, all of them. Adam got to name them. He was made to rule over them. So he was made to rule over the earth. But it says in the curse, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Says, Adam, you were made from the dust, you were made to rule over the dust, and now the dust will rule over you. Irma Baumbach was a columnist, a housewife, and a humorist. And she wrote this in her column: Dirt is the main enemy of my life. Dirt in the diaper, dirt on the plate, dirt in the rug, dirt in the sheets. I start at one end of the house cleaning the dirt. And by the time I get to the other end of the house, the house is dirty again. Dirt, dirt, dirt. My whole life spent cleaning dirt. And what do I get at the end of my life? Six feet of dirt. She may not have realized it, but that's exactly what this is saying. That's the curse. We are made to live forever. We are made to live and rule over the dirt. And because... We decided we wanted to be our own gods. Now the dirt wins out over us. The end of life, six feet of dirt. What else? What other causes or effects of the fall? Eve, her labor pains increased. She said, I will increase your labor pains in childbearing. It says Eve was called the mother of all life. That's why Adam named her Eve. And God gave the commandment, be fruitful and multiply. Adam said, I can't. None of these animals look like me. And so God said, hold on one second. And made him go to sleep and made Eve and said, okay, I made you a helper. Now you can be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with your kind. It is good. Be naked, unashamed, be fruitful. But yeah, it says, I'm going to increase your birth pains. And then it also says something else to Eve. It says, your desire shall be for your husband. And he will rule over you. What does that mean? Gender roles are cursed. Desire in Hebrew is a neutral term. It can be good or bad, but the word rule or rule over is almost always a bad connotation. It implies violence and oppression usually. so we have to take those two together. What this is saying is saying Eve. You, all your kind, all womankind, you're going to make an idol out of a relationship with man. You're not going to feel significant unless you're in a relationship with man. That's going to be the modus operandum for your kind. The MO for females. What does he say to Adam? He said, he will rule over you. Eve, you were created to be mother of all life. And find your significance in me. And since you didn't worship me as God, now you will have to look for your significance elsewhere and it will be in this relationship with your husband. And Adam, you were made to rule over all of creation. And because you have done this and decided to turn away from what was good, now that desire will be twisted. And in this relationship with your wife, you'll seek to get into relationships with women and push them around That's not good. The very order, the thing that God created as complementary roles for men and for women have now become mutually confirming addictions. I could preach a whole sermon on that, but we're covering a lot, so I need to move on. Lastly, the earth was cursed. The earth was changed. All of a sudden, it brought forth Thorns and thistles. Work was cursed. Work is not a curse, but work was cursed. Now, instead of just having to pluck fruit off the tree, Adam had to work the ground, and he says, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat of it all the days of your life. used to be easy, now not so much. It'll produce thorns and thistles for you. He says, "Yeah, the fruit trees were already here by the time you arrived on the scene, Adam. He says, "I created them. You want to be God? Creating takes work. Go create a livelihood for yourself. It requires work, a lot of it. So yeah, all of these things were the effects of sin. The world outside does not want us to preach about sin. Because it's a lot easier to say, man, the world is great. I'm on the right track. Two plus two is whatever I want it to be. But the Bible teaches us that a lot of things were affected. Some serious things were affected by sin. There is one more illustration that I wanted to give you. and This one comes from a pastor by the name of Timothy Keller. He says, I want you to picture a clock, like a giant clock, like in the movie Hugo, where you have this little kid wandering around in the huge train station and clock and whatnot. He says, creation is like that clock. We were meant to all work together. You know, scientists, ecologists, they teach us about the water cycle and things and how there's hints that it all used to get along and work perfectly until we came along and ruined it. And the Bible teaches something similar. He says, we are like that clock And God created us as a cog, a very significant cog in this clock of creation. But it says we were like a cog that wanted to rise up and thought that it should have a more prominent place in God's creation. And so picture a cog in that big clock in the movie Hugo jumping up out of its place, off of its axle, and trying to rise up higher, except what happens is that it falls down into the other gears of the clock, and all of a sudden you can smell burning metal and hear gears churning against each other. And all of a sudden, you know, the whole clock is affected by that one gear. The gear, most of all, is affected, but the whole clock is destroyed. That's kind of a picture of what it looks like, the fall. Last point, the remedy. Praise God. This passage also speaks about a remedy for sin. Human beings were now separated from God, the one place where we were supposed to find our significance. In verse 22, it reads, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, unless he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. No longer would Adam and Eve go for walks in the cool of the shade with the Creator of heaven and earth. No longer could they be naked and unashamed before God. They would always feel the need to hide from him. They were created for fellowship with God, but now cherubim stood in the way and a flaming sword. Our relationship with God was severed. Thankfully, the author of Genesis doesn't leave us like that. There is a remedy, and it comes in two parts. The first part comes in the form of a prophecy that's embedded in God's curse of the serpent. In this passage, God is dividing the entire human race into two groups of people, the seed of the woman and the seed of the snake. I don't have time to go into what those two were. If you want to read further into that, look at John chapter 8 or also the book of Revelation. But he says the snake and the woman are to be representatives of their kinds and there's going to be war between them. And basically the story says, woman, your seed... Is going to be at war with the seed of the snake. And they're going to do battle. And your offspring is going to be bruised, injured in this fight. But eventually he'll rise again. And the snake will be crushed. Does this sound like anyone you know? Notice in verse 15, God uses he, singular. So it's not referring to all of the woman's kind, all human beings. He says, He, singular, would be injured in the battle. His heel would be bruised. Even the ancient Jews interpreted this passage to be messianic. It directed them to put their hope in a distant Savior who would free them from their bondage to sin and death. And everything in the Bible, from first to last, directs us to acknowledge that this Savior is Jesus Christ. So the first part of this remedy is this. Put your hope in Jesus. The seed of the woman. The second part of the remedy comes to us in verse 21. And I just want you to notice the first five words. And the Lord God made. And the Lord God made. Days one through six, the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Day seven, he rested from all his work. Now he's at it again. He's working again. The Lord God made. He's making stuff again. Why? The work of creation was done. The work of redemption had just begun. And the fact that it says these five words, the Lord God made, means that redemption is God's work. Adam and Eve tried to sew together fig leaves. It's not that it wasn't good enough, but God made for them a tunic out of skin. The Lord God was basically communicating to them, this work of redemption, of fixing what's wrong with the world, is on me. Let me do it. Trust me for the work of making things right. Application. What does this story mean for how we should live our lives today? Number one, I want you to do something this week just because God tells you to. I want us to let God be God. Your conversation might look something like this. God, I don't know why you commanded me to eat of the fruit of that tree. I don't need to know why. I just know that you're glorious, you're good, and so I'm going to do it. I'm not going to eat of it. That's reason enough. This week, I want you to do something or not do something simply because of the glory of God. You're glorious, Lord, so I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. I'm going to love my enemy and turn the other cheek. I'm going to love my wife and treat her gently because you asked me to. Do something this week simply because God is glorious and because he asks you to. Number two, I mentioned earlier that the doctrine of sin bears with it not only the possibility for change, but the moral obligation to seek that change. Ultimately, the Bible teaches us that the work of redemption is God's work. He is the one who will make things right again, but he invites us to partner with him in this labor. Jesus asks us to be his yoke fellows. Take upon yourself my yoke. It is easy and light and light. He sends out his disciples and tells them, heal the sick, cast out demons, preach good news to the poor. Ultimately, it is God who will make the world right again, but he asks us to be about the business of reversing the effects of sin around us until he gets back. He says, this earth is never going to look like heaven, but do your best to make it look a bit more like heaven so that someone else can taste and see that the Lord is good and that heaven is a destination where they'd want to go. Number three, get naked. Not literally, unless you're married, then by all means. Number three, get naked. Get real with one another. The Bible says we started needing to control what other people knew about us. And that's still true today. There's real evil in the world. But if we're going to be about redemption and about God's work, we need to find some friends that we can be real with that we can be vulnerable with. And friends, when they find you, you need to love them. Love them for who they are. And also, not only do we need to get real with a group of friends, we need to get real with God because our relationship with him was also severed. King David was an excellent example of this. In Psalm 51, he said, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. What is it that King David is saying? He says, Lord, I'm just going to be honest with you. He says, Lord, maybe Lady Gaga was right. Maybe I was born this way. But one thing I know for sure, I am not on the right track. And I don't think it was your fault, God. I want to get right with you, Lord, and I need your help. If you've never prayed a prayer like that before, then today is your invitation to do so.
0: Thanks, Jeff. Heavenly Father, God, I pray, Lord, that for those here, God, who have heard your word, Lord, that God, you just meet us where we are, God, and, um, and help us to understand what it means, oh God, to be just your people, God, whether that we're in a place of searching or a place of seeking you, God our place in which we know you, in which uh, you know, we're trying to find you again. I pray, Lord, that you would just help us to find you in this place, O oh God, and um, to be the people in which you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name.